Welcome to the Tudor Travel Show. Wherever you're listening to us from in the world, you are most welcome. And particularly if this is your first time tuning into the Tudor Travel Show, it is wonderful to have you here. Now, perhaps one of the first things you might do is grab a pen and paper because a little later on in the show, I'm going to be talking to you about a couple of key Tudor dates in the diary dates that you will not want to miss if you can help it because you really will be able to indulge your Tudor passion to your heart's content. So, as I say, grab a piece of paper. We'll come back to that later. Now, in terms of today's show, as most of you are aware, we often have a theme for the show. And in this month, the theme is King Edward VI. In the first part of today's Tudor travel show, I'm going to be visiting Penshurst Place in Kent. And we're going to be going on a tour of Penshurst, looking at some of the key uh, aspects of the building's history but also particularly its Tudor history and of course Penshurst was granted to the Sydney family who have been associated now uh, with Penshurst Place for hundreds of years by King Edward VI when he gifted Penshurst, nice gift, uh, to Sir William Sydney who was his Chamberlain in 1552. Anyway, we will hear more about that in a moment. In the second part of the podcast, we will be talking to Florence Evans now. Some of you may recognise that name for Florence spoke to us a few months ago about a very special picture of Elizabeth I, which passed through the gallery of which she is a director, the Vice Gallery in London, a couple of years ago. And Florence told us all about that painting. And in today's podcast, she's back to tell us about a very interesting painting by a preeminent painter of King Edward VI court. And then, of course, we have our Tudor Travel Show news desk. Who wouldn't be without that? And today we head back in time to witness the dramatic events that are unfolding around the arrest of Catherine Howard. So, as usual, there's a lot of ground to cover and I guess we should dive straight on in and go over to Penshurst Place. Now, as I said, earlier in the summer I visited Penshurst and I met up with Gay G, who is one of the visitor guides at Penshurst. And we took a stroll through Penshurst Place and I had a chance to ask Gay all my burning questions about its Tudor history and the beautiful architecture and interiors of the building. Our tour begins in the inner courtyard at Penshurst Place and I began by asking Gay to describe the buildings that we could see around us and what they illustrated about the building phases at Penshurst. 
So in this courtyard's quite good actually because it does show the different periods of the house. Um, so behind me here, you can see a Tudor part mm. made from Tudor brick, which became very popular um, in Elizabethan times because a lot of times ships would go over to the continent, um, particularly over this side of the country, and they'd return with brick in the in the hold as ballast. Um, and it then became a very popular building material, particularly on the east of England. Um, so this part was built in the Tudor times. And then the, um, the King's Tower here was built in 1585, and it was built by Henry Sidney, who inherited Penshurst from his father, William Sidney. And he built it to commemorate the gift of Penshurst Place by Edward VI to the Sidney family. Hence the King's Tower, of Indeed, course. Indeed, yes. So we've got sort of quite a span of years just in That's this right. one courtyard. Yes, yes. So maybe we should go inside sure. and just explore some of the earliest part. Absolutely. Of Let's go. Let's go. And as you said, Gay, we're in the oldest part of Penshurst Place, which is the medieval hall, the Baron's Hall. And I have to say, it's one of my favourite halls. It, it's quite spectacular, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's supposed to be the largest remaining hall house in, in England. Um, the roof is 60 feet to the top. Um, it's about 65 feet long and 30 feet wide. Um, it's built by Sir John de Pulteney, as, as I think you know, um, who is a very wealthy merchant. Um, and the roof itself is made out of Spanish chestnut, which was, wasn't indigenous at the time. Um, and it's thought it came back in the holds of his ships. Um, so when he topped off the roof in 15, uh, 1341, um, he did it with this, which is supposed to be as strong as oak, but lighter. Right. Which okay. could explain why it's still there. Yes. Um, so you can see these enormous arched braces, and at the end of each of them, there is a satirical figure. And we don't know who they are, but they're thought to be workers on the estate. And this one in the middle, we think he could be the very first head gardener whose name was Curtis, and he's got what remains of a spade. Um, unfortunately, they lost their feet sometime. We don't know when. They are amazing characters and so they beautifully are. dressed in their medieval garb. Yes, and they all look really, really miserable. <laughs> but, you, but this is, um, now in terms of structure, this is a whole, whole house? A medieval whole house, yes. And... Um, uh, the, it conforms to the pattern of medieval hall houses, um, which you can think of as a capital H. So this uh, room, which, as I say, is 60-odd feet long, uh, would be the cross part of the H. And then at either end, you've got upstairs chambers known as solars, which wouldn't be connected to each other, but they would be the upper part of the H. And they would be used by the family, wouldn't they? That's right, yes. Everybody would live in here. Um, they would literally sleep in here, eat in here, um, have parties in here. If it was really cold, the animals would be in here as well. Uh, but the family would retire to the solars for a bit of peace and quiet. And just looking around, what the things that sort of catch my eye, this fabulous sort of minstrels gallery, mm. which 
it's kind of a, is it an oak made of oak? It, yes, and interestingly, this wouldn't have been part of the original 14th century mm. structure. This would have been put in by the Sydney family um, after they'd been given the house by Edward VI in 1552. And we know that because you can see the family symbols such as the broad arrow or fion in the middle there. Also the bear and ragged staff, which is the symbol of Warwickshire. And the reason we have that here is that Mary Sidney, um, beg your pardon, Mary Dudley, uh, married Henry Sidney, and it was a very prestigious match. So if you had a badge that you could add to your own badges, you then you'd flaunt it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it's quite dull now, but I can see flecks of really beautifully yes. coloured paint. So I imagine in its heyday, probably, it was really yes, vibrant. It was probably really brightly coloured. In fact, all the walls could easily have been painted mm. in very bright mm. colours. So just a couple of other features in here that mm. I think are quite important. You've obviously, um, you've got this wonderful octagonal fireplace. Yes. And of course, all, all medieval halls originally had a Central fireplace. fireplaces, yes. The smoke would escape yes. the roof. You haven't got the louvre, but you've still got the fireplace. That's, That's quite right. unusual, isn't it? It is unusual. And actually, this one is octagonal, which is thought to be unique. Um, we do still have fires in here from time to time, but they burn charcoal. I see. Um, because we don't want smoke going. We don't want going. the soot. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. And, and I know, because obviously I've been here before, I've got a sneaky peek, but these tables are amazing, aren't they? Because they're really old, so they are. how old are they? Um, well, they're almost as old as the hall itself, certainly within 100 years. Um, and there's supposed to be just one more set of tables like them in the country. And these are the actual tables where the servants would have sat. Um, so the more important servants would have sat towards that end, nearest to the dais, and then all the uh, less important to the other end. These lot would definitely be below the salt. Yeah. And then, of course, the family and their guests would sit on the table at the dais. And that's going to lead us nicely into the next room, because obviously that's the high end of the hall. Indeed, yes. And we're going to be going up the staircase that mm -hmm. would lead up to the solar. Mm. But just amazing to think of this hall with the fire lit full of and people, full yes. of people and, and of noise. course the floor would have been um, beaten earth and covered in rushes um, perhaps with some herbs strewn on and we always say you know they were tr regularly changed twice a year whether they needed it or not <laughs> yes you do hear them say that don't you, you do you do um, so incredibly cold of course mm. in the winter um, if you come here in the winter or in the early spring um, our stews are wrapped up with their thermals on so people were living in here this would never have been a big leaping fire it would have been a, a small glimmering fire so if you were really lucky you'd be lying next to it but if you weren't you'd be that must have been a position of privilege that's Indeed, all I can yes say. yes and of course the kitchens would have been through the archway in the center here we have the pantry on the right hand side again this is the typical medieval hall house layout the pantry on the right hand side the buttery where all the drink was kept on the left hand side and then a passageway leading to the kitchens because the chances were kitchens were going to catch fire at some point um, and they didn't want them then to take the whole building with them. It's really beautifully preserved those three doorways that's mm. another feature of this hall I particularly admire because you get to see that very cleanly don't yes. you? Although the medieval yes. kitchens were knocked down I think in the 19th century oh, you still, still got that 
that, that yes. layout to get a feel for how the hall would That's right. Work. And you do see in other um, buildings of a similar age that quite often it's all been divided up or there's been a loggia put in or whatever. Yeah. Good. So, well, I think we should go up to the solar right. and okay, check it then. out what's up there. Okay, all right. Cool. come upstairs so from the high end of the hall there's this beautiful stone carved staircase which is Tudor I believe. Is that yes right? it was actually installed by Sir Henry Sidney uh, when he inherited Penshurst Place from his father so that would be um, in the late 1500s. I see and that leads us up into this another really grand room which mm. as you said before is one of the ends of the H. Yes this would have been the end of the original house one of the ends of the original so house. So in the medieval period this was it? This was it. This is where the family would come to get away from what was going on downstairs mm -hmm. and the word solar doesn't come from light or from sunlight it comes from the French soul meaning alone so a lot of the time the ladies would come um, up here to maybe get away from the shenanigans downstairs which might be getting quite out of hand um, incidentally there's a little window further along the wall um, where they could look out down onto the Baron's Hall and see what their husbands were up to. <laughs> that must have been quite entertaining at times, well, I yes. imagine. I mean, we, we can imagine that indeed. Um, this is also where the family would sleep, uh, probably in curtained alcoves. Yes, um, because it was all communal living yeah, originally yes. in the medieval period. It really mm. wasn't until the Tudor period when the aristocracy started to create smaller and smaller rooms, yes. divided up more privacy in their living. But in the medieval period, everybody would have been yes that's well, of right. the family anyway yes. the private family. and of course because there is a Tudor wing um, here at Penshurst which is part of the private apartments you probably see the bedrooms of the period there yes I see and this room actually um, because it was originally the end room it had some beautiful windows didn't it and yes, we've lost yes, those today that's because right. more buildings have been added on y yes and in fact that that sort of adds uh, weight to the erroneous belief that solar means light <laughs> yeah. because it would have been much lighter in here and the door at the back there now that would have been a window and then there are windows here um, and a couple more that way as well so it definitely would have been a lot lighter yeah. at the time. Well it's a beautiful grand chamber quite magnificent mm. for mm. living in Yes, and so uh, you know we know that Henry VIII visited here, Elizabeth visited mm. here. So they would have been in these rooms, wouldn't well, they? Well, indeed. Well, Henry VIII, of course, owned it, yes. owned Penshurst Place um, for a while, um, having taken it from the third Duke of Buckingham. Um, so he, he was unfortunately minus ahead at this well, point. Well, <laughs> he was, yes. Um, yes, he overstopped, overstepped the mark. Um, he invited Henry here for three days of banqueting because he thought there was a chance that, as he had quite a bit of royal blood in his veins, that Henry would name him as his successor at a time when he didn't have a male heir. Um, unfortunately, Henry was not really impressed. And within two years, he was convicted of treason and had his head removed. And because it was treason, it meant that all his land became forfeit to the crown so that's how it moved into Henry VIII's possession and then of course his son Edward VI owned it and it was Edward who gave it to the Sydney family. Okay mm. we're going to move now from the solar sort of deeper into the house mm. into a part of the house that was built a little later on. Yes and, that's um, right. Let's go and see because I think that's okay. got something to do with Elizabeth. It has it? yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we've come into um, another 
magnificent room. Um, this is the Elizabeth the room. The Queen Elizabeth Queen room. Queen Elizabeth yes, room. Yes, yes. And so tell us about this room. When was it built and, and does it look like it used to look Well, like? not, not at all, really. Um, it was actually built in around 1430. Um, and originally, this room and the next room were all one. And so it was twice as long and probably much higher. Well, it was much higher. So a, a range of apartments were put, put in above here. So it would have been really tall. I mean, yes. almost like great hall exactly. size. Exactly. And maybe they realised, having built it, they didn't need another one. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the fashions began to change later, didn't it? The you know, rooms, we were talking yes. before, people wanted smaller rooms, they wanted more privacy. So maybe it just suited to put the partition yes, in and that's um, right. add that little yes. bit of extra privacy. Yes. But it's called the Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth room for there must be reason I guess. Well, indeed yes um, so Queen Elizabeth visited quite often to Penshurst Place. Her uh, One of her ladies-in-waiting was Mary Sidney. I've mentioned her um, to do with the Love Altar. Um, so she would come to visit her and I think particularly after the smallpox as I say Mary nursed her through smallpox um, and then didn't really go back to court very much. So the Queen would come here to visit her. We'll move on from this room and we're going to go through to the long gallery, which is okay. really the last part of the Tudor house, isn't it? But it's quite a magnificent room, yes, so we should is. go and enjoy yes. the beautiful view in there. Well, we are in the Elizabethan, or almost, it's yes. just an Elizabethan, yes, just long, Elizabethan. Gallery, long gallery, and it's a beautiful gallery, isn't yes. it? Can you tell us about it? Yes, long galleries uh, were built to provide a place to exercise, maybe to dance, to show off your beautiful new dress. Um, they would also have where children would play, and you'd also put paintings of your relatives and your important friends. And of course, the most important friend you could have at the time would be Queen Elizabeth. And we have her portrait have there her. at the end of the gallery. And then over the door, we have the young King Edward VI, who gave the house to the family. Do we know why he gifted it? Yes, we do. Um, Sir William Sidney was his uh, chamberlain, really. Um, he was a man who was looking after the young king very well. He looked out for his interests. And the king wanted to reward him for all the good work he'd done. Um, so in 1552, he made a gift of Penshurst Place to him. His uh, William Sidney's wife, Anne, was also the young king's governess, effectively. And Henry Sidney, although he was a bit older, was a very good friend of the king. And it's said that it's in his arms that Edward VI eventually died. I see. So they were really close. Really closely. Yes, yeah, so the, the uh, estate of Penshurst was given to reward him. Of course, Sir William Sidney was, I think, in his early 70s by then, which in those days was quite Very old. Very old, yes. Um, and within a couple of years, his son Henry became the next owner of Penshurst. I see, I see. lovely walking here in the gallery today the sun is out yes finally there's been a lot of showers today but the pools of light mm. on the floor um are just just make it really magical and, and it, inviting. it would have been a lot lighter because of the way it's been built than a normal long gallery which I as see. i say will be along the long side oh, of the house wow well, it's lovely um we're going to go downstairs in a mm. minute um, the rooms immediately below would never have been state rooms. However, there is one thing down there which I think you'll be interested in. Okay, well, we need to go and take a look. 
talk to you about Sir Philip Sidney, mm. who was um, a poet, a courtier, and a diplomat, mm. and a favourite at the Queen's uh, court. Now, he died in 1585 um, from complications following a leg wound in the Netherlands, um, and the Queen wanted his body to be brought back to England so he could have a state funeral. Um, she didn't want to pay for it, mind you. Um, so his father-in-law, Sir Francis Walsingham, was um, offered the opportunity to pay for it mm. and nearly beggared himself in the process. Um, but when he came, when the body returned, he had a magnificent funeral. Um, the funeral procession went on and on. And was this in London? Yes, it was. Mm. Um, and in fact, he was buried in Old St Paul's, which then, oh, right. of course, burnt down yes, some course. years later. Um, but this item here is his funeral helm. Okay. So he never would have worn this in battle. Obviously, the um, balance would have been all wrong. Mm, yes. But it's surmounted by the family crest, which is a porcupine. And originally, the porcupine would have been painted in the family colours of blue and yellow. I see. And the spines would have been gilded, so it would have been absolutely magnificent. Wow. And as I say, it would have been... Um, it would have been carried in his funeral procession. Was that carried by somebody? Or yes, was it... on a cushion. Oh, right, yes. I see, yeah. Um, and they say that Sir Francis Walsingham spent such a lot of money on Sir Philip Sidney's funeral that when um, he grew a little older, he had a codicil put in his own will, but when he died, he was to be buried at night because it was cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful story. <laughs> Excellent. again but before we go obviously um, are people may be wanting to plan a visit here so what yes. do they need to know about kind of access and opening well hours? Um, we are open every day um, from well every day from the beginning of April to the end of October we're also open uh, weekends during March um, but I suggest they have a look at our website at pensersplace.com which gives full details well that's perfect well thanks very much Gay you're very welcome nice to meet you nice to meet you so that was me in conversation with Gay G, visitor guide at Penshurst Place. Thank you to all the staff at Penshurst who invited me in and made me so welcome. I hope you enjoyed that little tour of the property and if you want to see more of Penshurst Place then why not head over to YouTube and search for the Tudor Travel Guide channel. Whilst at Penshurst, I also took the opportunity to make a 10-minute video where you'll see a lot more of the exteriors of the building and I talk in a little bit more detail about the Tudor history of the palace, in particular in relationship to the Berlins. Excellent. So with that, we are now ready to head over to the TTG News Desk and find out exactly what dramatic news has been breaking in the Tudor month of November. Welcome to the November O'Clock News with your newsreader, Robert Cole. Here are the Tudor headlines for the month. Rumours of Catherine Howard's infidelity circulate at court. Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn arrive back in England following their triumph at Calais. Jane Seymour's body is buried in St George's Chapel, Windsor. And Lady Jane Grey is tried for treason at the Guildhall in London.
Good day. Now for our top story today. Rumours are circulating at court that King Henry VIII of England has left Hampton Court Palace in a storm of controversy that is currently surrounding his wife, Queen Catherine Howard. Unconfirmed reports from Lambeth Palace, official London residence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, suggests that accusations of infidelity have been laid against the young Queen, who was joined in matrimony with His Grace barely one year ago. It is believed that the King left Hampton Court several days ago, on the 6th of November, while the Queen has been moved, under armed guard, to Sion House on the north bank of the River Thames, opposite Richmond Park. Here in the studio to tell us more about this delicate situation is our reporter Catherine Simmons. Catherine, there seems to be a great deal of confusion about what exactly is going on in the royal household at the current time. Can you tell us what you know? Yes, you're right, Robert. It is a delicate situation. There is a huge amount of secrecy around these events. It's quite clear that the palace does not want people to know exactly what is transpiring behind closed doors. However, my source at Lambeth Palace told me that the current crisis began when the Archbishop Cranmer was approached by Lord Chancellor Audley and the Earl of Hertford about the Queen's, how can I say this delicately, light behaviour? These accusations have apparently been levelled at her by someone who once lived alongside the Queen at my Lady of Norfolk's house before she came to court. At present, we are not sure who that lady is, but only that she refused to enter the Queen's household on account of the sordid behaviour she had witnessed in the past. And what are these accusations exactly? Well, they are that the Queen has lived most corruptly and sensually while under the guardianship of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, whose care, of course, the Queen was under until she came to court to serve the lady now known to all as the King's sister, Anne of Cleves. There are some lurid details coming to light about how she, the Queen, hath laid in bed naked with a certain Francis Deerham. Of course, he is currently the Queen's gentleman usher, but both have known each other from their younger years. And the King, how did he come to hear of the scandal? Archbishop Cranmer was pressed to approach the King, and having questioned the unknown accuser himself, left a note for His Majesty in the King's Holy Day closet at Hampton Court. My understanding is that initially His Grace dismissed these claims and would hear little of them. After all, it is well known that His Majesty refers to Her Grace as being the very jewel of womanhood. Apparently, the King claimed they were likely vicious lies and, I quote, more forged matter than the truth. Subsequently, the Archbishop was tasked with investigating these claims and it is my understanding that they have indeed been substantiated. We now know that the King left Hampton Court just a few days thereafter. And as you said at the top of the story, the Queen herself has since been moved to Sion House under house arrest. And what will happen to her there? We know that her jewels, perhaps one of the most symbolic trappings of her high estate, have already been seized. Although she has already been interrogated by Archbishop Cranmer, and I believe on one occasion her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, she is likely to face further questioning in the coming weeks. 
Reports are that the Queen is deeply distressed, hysterical even, but that she has already admitted to transgressions with more than one gentleman. Although I should stress that as far as we are aware at the moment, these transgressions appear to have occurred before she married His Majesty. Hmm, so what do you think will happen in the long run? Will she still remain as Queen? Is the King likely to press for divorce? At this stage, frankly, it is hard to say. After all, the King is not much taken to clemency in situations like this, as we have already seen with the Queen's late cousin Anne Boleyn. My suspicion is that if indeed these accusations are true, then the King will move against her. The question is, will this be limited to divorce or annulment? Or will this sorry tale lead only to the scaffold and the Queen end up paying for the wayward behaviour of her youth with her life? That, Robert, remains to be seen. What dramatic events are unfolding here in London? Well, thank you for that, Catherine. That now concludes the November o'clock news for the month. All that remains for me is to say that the TTG News Desk will return in December. But for now, it's back to the 21st century. Oh, I always feel so sorry for Catherine Howard. I know in many ways she was the architect of her own downfall, but the poor girl must have been terrified. Anyway, I think it's time to shake that off and listen to a piece of music. And this is one by one of our favourite composers here on the Tudor Travel Show, and that is Thomas Morley. And it's called My Own Sweet Jewel. time to move on to the second part of the show and we're welcoming back Florence Evans of the Vice Gallery in London and now some of you will remember Florence she was talking to us a few months ago about a very special portrait of Elizabeth I and while I was in the gallery earlier this summer I just happened to notice a portrait of a very familiar fellow 
and that inspired me to invite Florence back onto the show so that she could tell us all about the secrets of this particular portrait, which is one by the studio of William Scrotts, and it is a painting of the boy king Edward VI. And before I go over and start my conversation with Florence, I wanted to let you know that there is a blog article which does accompany this part of the podcast where you will be able to not only see the portrait under discussion, but there are some further notes about the portrait and about William Scrott. So I will post a link to the blog in the show notes accompanying this podcast. So... I think all that remains for us is to go over and begin our conversation with Florence. So hello, Florence. Welcome back to the Tudor Travel Show. Hi, Sarah. Good to speak to you again. We have another fascinating painting to talk about. Um, we do indeed. And we do. And, and, and really, this came about because when I was last in your gallery, I noticed almost sitting over your left shoulder was a portrait of someone rather familiar and um, I asked if you would come back on the show and talk to us about that portrait. So today we're going to be talking about a portrait of the young King Edward VI. That's right. The boy king of England. Indeed. But well, so, so maybe we could start um, by, you could start by describing the painting for us. Right. Well, rather like the Elizabeth I that we chatted about on our last podcast together, this is on a lovely intimate scale. It's a small bust-length portrait of Edward, and um, it derives from some full-length versions which can be seen in Hampton Court Palace and also at the Louvre in Paris. And um, it's by William Scrotts, from the studio of William Scrotts. Um, he was an artist who was appointed as the king's painter by Henry VIII shortly before he died. But the painting in question, I should go back to a description of it. Um, it shows the young Edward um, with an incredibly pallid face, um, which really, I think, evokes his mother, uh, Jane Seymour, and with these wonderfully startling blue eyes and a beautiful uh, doublet of red velvet um, silk, uh, actually cloth of gold, which we can chat about mm -hmm. um, further in, in our conversation, wonderfully and richly embroidered with gold thread. It really is, isn't it? And he's got that beautiful flaming red Tudor hair showing in his eyebrows as yes, well. In the yeah, hair again, as... I think... I think he really, in, in that sense, sort of um, looks rather like his half-sister Elizabeth. Yes, because they've both got quite almond-shaped faces, haven't mm. they? Which I think yes. is quite reminds me of her, certainly. Mm. And and as you say, there's there, there's. Uh, by the way, for those people listening to this podcast, of course, I will post a picture and, and a short accompanying blog to go with this podcast, so you can look at the picture as you listen to Florence and I talking. But you, yes, his 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 garment is really what catches the eye because it's simply just so rich isn't it it is and it is quite literally a costly commission um it contains in the painting itself both silver leaf and gold leaf um, which would have been an incredibly expensive process so i should explain under the red doublet um the artist has laid silver leaf 
And this is to give it a wonderful glow and shimmer to give the effect of cloth of gold. Mm -hmm. Now, cloth of gold was a specifically royal um, fabric, which was only worn by kings traditionally, and it was woven red silk with real silver or gold threads. So having the silver under the red pigment in his doublet here gives it a shimmer. It literally shines in the light and catches the light in the most wonderful way, especially, I should say, in the evening with a golden light, candle light. You can imagine how evocative it is. And then again, on top of that, um, over the uh, gold embroidery, uh, which has been painted with a yellow pigment, is applied gold leaf. So it's an exquisite jewel of a painting, and um, it really is an extraordinary thing to behold. So that would actually, I think, as you were referring to, mean that the actual painting itself would cost quite a lot. Yes, we can assume that this would have been a royal commission and it would have been painted to be given as a stately gift to a loyal courtier and disseminated really to uh, someone in the young boy king's circle. Um, and it, it is undoubtedly a royal commission, I would say, although provenance-wise um, we can... Uh, only trace it back to the 17th century. I say only. That's still quite a long way, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. So, Florence, what I find really intriguing is is your description of the, the this use of um, silver leaf and gold leaf for creating the effect of the fabric. And was, was that a technique that was widely used at the time? I would say, um, Sarah, this is a really interesting question. It was widely used in royal iconography, specifically in Tudor England. Um, and this is because it was a skill set that um, artists in England developed to present costume in as magnificent a way as possible because, of course, sitters at the time wanted to, to display their wealth through um, mm. a shimmering array of their costume and, and display of their clothes. And a lot of artists working in England at that time were trained in goldsmith studios. So you would have artists like William Peake at the time and, of course, Scrotts, our artist here, who had studio assistants who were trained to apply both gold and silver leaf to their paintings. Artists in um, Tudor England were really craftsmen rather than specific individuals who were known for their own name as and as being kind of names in their own right. So you have craftsmen working, and in the end, the ultimate painting that, that, that was commissioned was a work of great craft rather than the work of an artist who was known as a person per se. Uh, I'm coming across perhaps in a rather garbled way, but I hope that kind of conveys to you the sense that this is a painting where craft is the most important element to create the sense of wealth and where gold and silver comes in so beautifully to present that. Well, that's very clear and that's really interesting. I never really thought of it in that way. So um, if we can think about um, the painter, you talked about William Scrotts, who mm. took over from Holbein, and, 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 and certainly most people are very aware of Holbein and all those amazing works that he did. Mm. Uh, I, for one, am certainly less familiar with uh, Mr Scrotts. And so what can you tell us about him? 
William Scrotts was presumably a Flemish extraction, and he was first recorded in 1537 as court painter to Mary of Hungary, who was regent of the Netherlands. But the intriguing thing is that there are no known works by him from that period today. And in fact, he's almost exclusively known for his British work mm. um, and his portraits of Edward VI. Now, he must have established a reputation when he was working in the Netherlands because when he succeeded Holbein as king's painter for Henry VIII in 1545, he had an extraordinarily high salary, <laughs> which was over £62, which is almost twice as much as Holbein's stipend. That's... So when you think that Holbein was a megastar, yes. really, um, Scrooge was even more successful. Um, and it's, it's extraordinary when you think of it in that context, because today he's not really known in the same way that Holbein is. But he must have been incredibly respected as an artist when he came over to England and started painting in the court of Henry VIII. Can I ask your professional opinion about a comparison between Holbein and Scrotts? Where, how would you rate them? Um, well, it's, it's a difficult question, Sarah, because I have to say Holbein is one of my favourite artists. I think in terms of realism... And in terms of a modern eye, Holbein is and was absolutely extraordinary. Whereas when we look at Scrotts and the work of Scrotts, there is a naivety to the way in which he renders a face, which perhaps doesn't quite um, sing in the same way mm. that Holbein does for us today. Yeah. But he was undoubtedly accomplished, and what he really did achieve was... A, an extraordinary um, portrayal of costume, as we've discussed. And, I mean, I think also there's a wonderful um, flavour to that naivety that is so typical of Tudor England that it has a place in um, royal iconography and British history and within art history today. I think that, you know, he definitely deserves recognition as an artist. Well, that's fascinating about Holbein because Holbein is absolutely one of my favourite painters because sometimes you just feel like you're looking at a photograph of somebody. It's as if they were alive now, whereas this yeah. painting is obviously a painting of somebody and I feel like I'm looking at somebody who's, you know, you know, from 500 years ago. But it's really fascinating to hear your sort of professional opinion about the merits of both of these artists. Thank you. But the painting, the date of the painting, has it, has it been tested? I mean, how do we know? What, I can't remember, actually. Did we mention the date that we thought this painting had been painted? And, and how do we know that? Well, um, there are a number of elements that come into play here. So, um, firstly, I should say that when we bought this painting from Bonhams in 2017, it was catalogued as being by a follower of William Scrotts. Um, but when we bought it, we were pretty sure from looking at the paint surface that it was certainly contemporary. And we um, underwent, um, well, the painting underwent tree ring analysis by um, Ian Tyers, who is a dendrochronologist. That's quite a mouthful, I realise. <laughs> so he um, was able to test and count the number of tree rings, which gave a date um, for the panel before 1542. Now, I should say that um, 
panels often took over a decade to pre- to prepare um, oh. until um, they were ready to be painted on. So this date fits really beautifully with um, the date for when we believe it was painted. Now, obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning of our chat, um, this um, relates to some full lengths which were painted by Scrubs around the time that um, the young prince, nearly king, sat um, for the artist uh, in sort of 1545. Mm -hmm. Um, And by 1547, obviously, with the death of Henry VIII, um, many more versions were knocked out from Scrotz's studio Mm -hmm. to um, really uh, celebrate his reign as king. And I think that this probably... Uh, came on the back of that flurry of commissions from the royal court um, at that time. So we can confidently say it would have been painted, certainly, by 1550. Um, and, yes, I mean, I think that it's it's fairly... Um, it's, it's, cert- it's as certain as it can be with mm. this sort of painting. Mm. But definitely during the young king's lifetime. So absolutely, yeah. absolutely, without a doubt. Mm. Now that brings That's me on. The wonder of scientific analysis, isn't it? Which is helpful today. Yes. It's amazing. But this mm. brings me on to my favourite bit, which is always about the provenance and the story and how these paintings, you know, who, who, what families they move through and mm. and how they get to be where they are. So, what do we know of the the life story of this painting? Yes, well, um, obviously, as I say, we bought it at Bonhams and it was sold by a family who had had it um, since the mid or certainly the sort of last quarter of the 17th century. It, it was recorded in the collection of Thomas Burnett, second laird of Kemney in Aberdeenshire. And it descended until 2017 um, in that family when they sold it um, through Bonhams to us. Now, it's interesting that it has that Scottish angle because, of course, um, we have such a strong link with Scotland and the royal family had such a strong link with Scotland at that time. Mm. Um, So I think it, it, it could well have been given to a courtier with those Scottish connections possibly even to um, the family of Thomas Burnett. Um, It's just that he is the first person to have actually recorded it within his um, collection um, in in a document. Um, So, yes, and it's got a whole Scottish angle, I would say, in answer to your question. So it's lived a long time in Scotland before returning Mm. south of the border. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, that's been, as ever, fascinating to talk to you and a fabulous insight um, from a true professional in terms of... Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, as always. Oh, thanks ever so much. Well, I've learnt learnt more today, quite a bit more, actually, about Tudor paintings and about William Scrotts in particular, so thank you. And I look forward to welcoming you on the show again when we find another fascinating portrait to talk about. I look forward to it as well. I'm sure we'll find plenty of things to talk about. I and mean, we're always getting new and exciting paintings to research. And you will be the first to know when we get something Tudor 
excellent for sure excellent thanks so much then florence So once again, that brings us towards the end of November's show. But I did promise you at the top of the programme that I had a few Tudor dates for the calendar for next year. So if you have your pen and paper to hand, then let me tell you about three specific dates that are forthcoming in 2020. Now, the first of these is in June and it's a real heads up. You may remember earlier this year, I spoke to Maya from Dig Ventures. They were undertaking their first year's dig at Sudley Castle. Well, things went so well, as you know, that Dig Ventures are returning for another week of digging in June. And this will be followed on the 13th and 14th of June by their annual archaeology festival. And this year it's dedicated to the anniversary of the Field of Cloth of Gold, which of course has its 500th anniversary in 2020. And there's going to be a whole host of fabulous speakers and events. 
maybe yours truly may be there too. So um, more details will be coming and I understand from Maya that tickets will be available from around the 1st of December. So look out for that and certainly I will be letting people know more details about these events through my newsletter, social media and forthcoming podcasts. And the second date I have for your diary is uh, next year's first Tudor meetup. In fact, a midsummer Tudor meetup. So some of you may be aware that I started a Tudor meetup last year and after two very successful events was definitely uh, a will for us to carry on in 2020. And it's a very special one because we have been invited to Norfolk to the house of one of the Tudor meetup attendees, Brigitte Webster, who also runs the Tudor and 17th century experience from their beautiful Tudor home in Norfolk. Now, Brigitte is a specialist in historic cooking and she recreates wonderful Tudor experiences for people who want to go and spend time with her. And we're very lucky to have an invitation to go and visit an absolutely beautiful Tudor house that she lives in and to enjoy some a tour of the house and some Tudor treats. Again, the date for this is going to be Saturday the 27th of June, a wonderful midsummer Tudor treat. And more details will be following on that shortly and if you're interested you will be able to book to come on the event. Now the final date I have for your diary is a very special date in September 2020. Now some of you will have um, taken part in the recent 1535 virtual mini progress that I co-hosted with my co-author of the In the Footsteps books Natalie Gruniger and there was a tremendous amount of interest in that and as a result I am currently putting together a real-life 1535 mini-progress with British History Tours and we are going to be taking a group of Tudor enthusiasts from Sudley Castle and wending our way through places like Tewkesbury and Gloucester and Barclay to Thornbury. And we are hoping that this is all going to happen in early September next year. So again, all the dates have been finalised for that and there will be more information coming your way soon. And if you're interested in any of these, the very best way to keep in touch and make sure that you get the details of all these events as they are released is to make sure you're signed up and subscribed to the Tudor Travel Guide newsletter. And you can do that via the Tudor Travel Guide blog and the homepage on www.thetudortravelguide.com. So I look forward to sharing a lot more detail with you in the coming weeks. So that is the end of the programme and as ever I wanted to finish the programme by thanking the patrons of this show. And this month we have a new patron and I would just like to welcome Mark Wardell uh, to the patrons group. I am incredibly grateful to all of you for your continued support of the Tudor Travel Show. Next week, I head off to Hever Castle for a very special podcast recording. We are going to be recording a Tudor Christmas at Hever, both for the podcast 
and there will be a YouTube video coming your way. So I can't wait because I've never visited Hever before at Christmas and I've seen the pictures and it looks amazing. So I'm really excited to be back here next month in December for our Christmas special. Until then, my time traveling friends, have a wonderful month and I look forward to being together with you again very soon.